So you're listening to uh, Love and Science, and it's me, Malcolm Love, uh, Hannah Bestwick. Hi, Hannah, Hi, as, yeah. as usual. Um, Jenny's joined us from last week. If you were listening to the show last week, uh, you will remember Jenny was talking about the Festival of Nature and a photography competition. We get, she's back here. Hello again. Hello. Um, actually, can you just say a little bit more to me, Jenny? Uh, hello. That's very good. I was just checking that your level was right. That's good. We don't normally do that on air, but I thought we might have... just mix it up a bit. And um, I'm delighted to say we're joined by uh, Philippa Gardom. Gardom. Sorry, Gardom. Perfect. Yes, that's welcome. It's, it's a different Gar- Gardoma. Yes, we, we just yes, Jardin. You know, and there must be loads of variations. There are we lots can get of to variations. Yes. Do you know? Even though my name is Love, which is a clearly a, 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 a clear English word, people say, Ah, Mr. Lou. Uh, uh, Mr. Lave. Mr. Lowe. Mr. Lowe. <laughs> <laughs> I can't quite believe. So, Philippa Gardam, great, uh, uh, nice to have you here. And uh, I'm going to get I'll get you to introduce yourself uh, um, uh, to everybody. Just tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, so my name's Philippa, um, as you just said. Yeah. Um, and I used to teach science, but I've sort of given up that stressful job and now I have this lovely life where I sit and write um, science resources for schools and I sit at my in my study and I look out at the fox clubs playing in the garden while I'm writing away. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's you're a living, You're life. living yeah. the dream, aren't you? I am living the dream, yes. You, cer- yes. you certainly are. Yeah. And, and um, Hannah, what, uh, how... Uh, so we're going we're gonna to hear from you a little bit later because uh, you've been a bit of festival watching as well. We talk about Festival of Nature, yours is another one, so we'll come back to that. Hannah, what kind of a weekend did you have? Well, on topic, I spent my whole weekend at the Festival of Nature, not I'm doing so anything like important, I no. just wanted to be there. I'm so glad you said that, because that <laughs> allows us to talk about Festival of Nature. Yes, what, 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 coincidentally. What were your, what were your highlights? Um, Alright, so there's loads of... There was loads of things going on, loads of charity tents and a couple of institution tents like uh, UE and the Bristol of Uni. Um, I went around every single one of them, looked at all the fun interactive things they had. I went to a talk by the Wild Fowl and Wetland Trust. That was great. It was about... Um, Wetlands. <laughs> Wildfowl? <laughs> yeah. But mostly wetlands. And that was really good. I just went saw a talk by the Natural Trust on door mice. And they are so cute. And in one of the tents there was actual field mice and baby field mice in little cages. And oh my heart, they were so small. So small and cute, and I just I stood there for quite a long time looking at them, and also then went around a few other tents and looked at some skulls and skeletons. <laughs> Had a great good. time. That's it was the best sound, thing ever. <laughs> sounds to me like the perfect weekend. It was skulls it was and skeletons. That's all. I often wake up on a Saturday morning, think skulls and skeletons. Yeah. That's what I. That was the way that to make go. me happy. Yeah. Yeah. And and Jenny, you you came on the show last week. You were talking about you were you'd organised a photography show. Yeah. And uh, so it was all everything was set by the time we, we, we talked to you. Yeah. But um, it, it's all, it all happened this it's weekend. It's all happened this yeah. weekend. So, so, so how did it go? Uh, it was brilliant, actually. I had a, such a great weekend. Unfortunately, I did miss everything else that was going on in the festival, so oh, I get a good review from Hannah, though. Yeah. So, um, so I, <laughs> yeah, brilliant. But um, I was just on my stall... Um, uh, sort of gathering people's votes so I had these uh, sticky stars that people were sticking in boxes next to the photos so I had five finalists and people at the Vessel of Nature were voting for the photos and I just spent 
both days just sort of talking to people about photography and the frequently asked question of all the photos was where was this one taken about every single one so I had <laughs> by the end of the Sunday I knew I know where all the photos were taken now I think so yeah um, cool. it was brilliant though it was absolutely brilliant and, and uh, were people enthusiastic about They were really enthusiastic. The yeah, definitely. Yeah, people came to see their own pictures. Yeah, they did. So, um, yeah, a couple of people came to see their own picture, which was, re- which was really good. I'm really glad they did because that was one of the, the points of displaying them is so that they could come and see them and to see them displayed. I tried to, like, make them look nice and, like, I mounted them all nicely with, like, um, titles and things. So, so, yeah, it was really nice for them to come and see them and meet the photographers as well because I didn't know who any of these people were. Uh, they'd just apply to the competition and yeah. it was really nice to sort of meet them shake their hands and say congratulations and uh, I mean I, uh, clearly looking at these lovely photos is is, uh, is purpose in itself but what yeah. was the purpose what 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 was the thing that drove you to create this competition yeah so I um, it's all for my master's research project I'm doing a master's in science communication at UE and Philippa's been on the course with me as well um, and my project... I, I know that course. Oh, do you? Yeah. Oh, really? You have some very good tutors. You look very familiar. Maybe you've taught one of my modules. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, my project is... Um, the whole thing is capturing nature. How do images um, encourage people to interact with the local nature? So um, I was just... I was also interviewing people and observing people while they were looking at the photos just to see, like, how they reacted to them and, like, whether they, like, discussed them, how close they got, things like that. And have you got any sort of conclusions about that yet, or is it too um, early? Yeah, it's early, too early. Really yeah, I've got, early all, days. I've got all the data. I've just got to like crunch yes, it and sit down yeah, and like yeah. deal with it now. Yeah, <laughs> so yes. yeah, all, all the hard work. Well, that sounds yeah. fascinating. Thank you. And, and um, Jenny very kindly has brought us back to Philippa again uh, because you uh, you missed the Festival of Nature because you were at another festival just up the road in Cheltenham. That's right, yes, I was really sad to miss the um, Bristol Festival of Nature, but we'd already sort of organised these tickets to the Cheltenham Science Festival. Um, so it was a family was thing, wasn't it? That's right, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, 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 with yeah, the whole family, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. So um, Cheltenham Festival's been going for quite a long time. Actually, I think from about 2002, if my yes, memory yes, serves me yes, right. Yes. Um, a lot of people think it's a children's uh, event. Well, they do a lot of events for children um, throughout the year. It's a charity, so they have a lot of um, ex- a lot of exciting activities for school children throughout the year. Um, but actually, there are lots of events um, for adults as well, and probably um, there are over a hundred events um, altogether. And I think about ninety of those probably are, um, are primary, primarily um, for adults. So, yeah. And, and what did what caught your eye while you were there? Well, do you know? Um, it was funny because Hannah was just saying about the skulls and skeletons, and I was yeah. thinking actually two of the things I really enjoyed were actually things that were for children. Um, one of these was um, making Lego mosquitoes um, which the Perbright Institute um, were organising and you could make this Lego mosquito and then um, they were discussing um, genetically modifying them so you know like what would happen if you took off the, ma- the mouth so you took off your mouth piece of Lego and discussed well obviously then the female couldn't bite people and then couldn't spread diseases like dengue fever and Zika and malaria and so on um, and then what happens if they have smaller wings so you replace your, you know, your, your mosquito wings with smaller wings and apparently well obviously then the female mosquito can't fly so well but also then apparently she can't attract a mate as well so you know, that those sort of hands-on things were great fun and I you know I'm a bit of a child at heart so I enjoyed all those um and what else what else did you go to um so I went to a really good talk um 
uh, Alice Roberts were sort of chairing this discussion. Um, but there's somebody there called um, Helen Pilcher who was talking about de-extinctions. So sort of, you know, animals that have been made extinct, trying to bring them back to life. So I think we've probably, a lot of people have heard about, you know, woolly mammoths and passenger pigeons and things. Yeah, yeah. But did you know there's actually an animal that has been, that has become extinct twice? What bad luck! Is it a duck? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> no. It's like um, uh, you know to to be to paraphrase the the, the the play to be extinct once is rather rather unfortunate. <laughs> yes. Be extinct twice is rather careless. Yes, I think it wasn't wasn't for want of trying by the scientists. So the story is is this um, mountain goat from Spain called a Bacardo. Yeah. Um, and the, the goat, there was one female left, and they called her Celia, and they put on a tagging thing around her neck. Um, and then suddenly, one day, it went very quiet, and they thought, oh, no, she must have died. So they found that she'd been um, crushed by a tree, very sadly, the last Bacardo goat, poor Celia. But they took some um, cells from her and implanted them into, um, I think, about 50 normal female goats um, and um, in order to try to clone the, mm. to clone Celia and um, they were successful in that one of these 57 fetus, um, you know, implanted eggs actually yeah. um, gave, gave was, was born but sadly she didn't survive more than 10 minutes Aww. so it's a very sad story but it's, it is amazing you know, that so, one animal has been brought back from extinction yes. so maybe there is hope for the woolly mammoth in future yes Although I suspect, because uh, if, if Andrew was here, he'd, he'd, he would uh, love to talk about Jurassic Park and all that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, um, but um, I, I think that's probably extremely unlikely, isn't it? Because the, the, the idea of um, uh, DNA being preserved in amber from sort of 200 million years ago... Yes. It's unlikely that that's viable. I think so. DNA um, is a very fragile molecule, so I think you know it just cannot survive for that long. Yeah. And also, you've got to think about the ethics of it. You know, is it right to do this? Mm. Um, is it worth spending all that money on it? Mm. And then, you know, if you did bring back woolly mammoths, where would they live? You know, and perhaps they need to be in woolly mammoth herds. Perhaps they'd be a bit lonely on their own. So, yeah. lots of things to think about. What, what would you say about the festival itself in terms of the atmosphere of it? Is it? Is it? Is it? Is it uh, what, what's it like? Uh, it's a really lovely atmosphere. It's in this beautiful, um, beautiful grassy square, lots of pretty flowers, and there's um, there are eight big marquees there. And it's a really friendly atmosphere, really laid back. But you can be sort of lying on the grass eating your ice cream, and suddenly you hear all these people sort of, you know, they walk past and they're talking about light waves or quarks or <laughs> DNA or something. So, and it's also friendly. People do chat to you, you know, sort of while you're sort of sitting in the in yeah. an event, the person next to you will get chatting and everything. So it's really friendly, and it was very relaxed, and the weather was lovely, of course, as well. And of course, I guess because because it's open to the, it, it, it's designed for for the general public you don't have to be a specialist in any kind of science you don't have to be well versed in science to enjoy these talks do you because yeah, exactly. people people pitch them exactly they're, they're yeah. all very well pitched yes yeah. we had a brilliant talk by adam rutherford and you know again very very well pitched so yeah it's really good very very good all right well uh, you're listening to love and science and uh uh, with me, Malcolm Love, and uh, Hannah Beswick, uh, Jenny French, and uh, Philippa Gardam uh, today, and uh, we've been talk. We were talking just uh, before uh, uh, in, in the last session. Section. Uh, 
um, uh, all about the competition at the um, Festival of, of Nature that Jenny's been running, photographic competition. Now, competitions imply winners. Yes, Jenny. they do. Yes, so they do. We, if we, uh, unfortunately, I don't have a drum roll recorded. We can all just... With, yes, that's right. Yeah, very good. And, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So tell us, were there runners-up or anything? Um, no, unfortunately, no. there's just one winner. Well, um, I mean, they all good. did amazing. Sounds so um, it was pretty pretty close but um so the winner was sunlight in the woods by holly minot and i think that's how you say her last name but um it was absolutely brilliant photo and one of the most um one of the things that people said about her photo the most was that they really wanted to be there because it looked like really cool and calm it was a sort of like dappled rays of sunlight coming in on a, a river winding through the woods. It was absolutely beautiful. So oh, beautiful. Well, definitely well, deserve yeah. winner. Well done, <laughs> Holly Minor. Round of applause. There we go. Yeah, if you're listening, Holly, well done indeed. And um, so we're, we're, we're going to move on to a bit of uh, uh, science news. Now, so we've had the news of the winner of the photography competition. Woo. Now we're going out into space. This is what we do on this show. You know, we just, it's the uh, local and the far away. Uh, and we're on Mars now because uh, one of the uh, stories that um, y- you will have seen around uh, is that the Curiosity rover. Um, s- now, this doesn't sound very exciting, this title. The Curiosity rover, this is the rover which has been uh, wandering around um, uh, Mars since uh, 2012, has seen seasonal methane swings. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> uh, um, but the thing that's really interesting about that is, is um, as I read this story, I, I, I looked at the uh, write-up in the BBC and I think there was another one I, I looked at. Um, ba- basically, the excitement is because of this. You would expect seasonal changes in methane because of uh, the phenomena of asteroids and comets um, landing, crashing on the surface of Mars with organic material in it. And the ultraviolet rays from the sun heat these things up and they, one of the byproducts is these product, is these things, that, organic products, that's, that's products, thing, uh, chemicals basically containing carbon are broken down. One of the things that happens is this little molecule comes off methane. And, um, but the people who've done this research, uh, who are analysing this research, say that, that what is really exciting is you would normally expect that to be a variation of 20%. So it varies by a fifth over the year. That's, that would be what you would expect if, if this was the reason why uh, you were detecting methane and why it was varying. However, uh, what they're detecting is 300%. In other words, three times as much variation. Uh, and um, that is extraordinary. And so the methane must be coming from somewhere else, inside the, the planet itself, probably. Um, now, <laughs> you may see uh, newspaper headlines saying, aha, this means we've discovered life, because that's one of the sources of methane, is life. I mean, cows are a very good source of methane. Um, rotting mm, pl- rotting <laughs> plants. Are very, yes, Rotting plants are a very good source of methane. Some human beings are a very good source of methane. Not all of, not all of us, it turns out. Um, but um, actually, uh, it's only one possibility. 
I don't know if any of the others, uh, other of you, have seen this um, story, uh, but um, it, it's uh, of course it's so tempting to go aha, life on Mars buried beneath the surface. But because we've got to be, we've got to be cautious, haven't we? A lot of people just want they want to find life on Mars, don't they? And that every single thing has to point to life on Mars. But um, it, like, uh, like you say, it might not. It probably isn't life if it's yeah. like varying that much. Um, yeah. Like if it was bacteria or something like that, like methanogens, then it would definitely not be like that fluctuating. Ooh, what's a methanogen? Um, it's a there. methane. Well, there's two types. I get them confused. I mean, I did do a degree in this, so I should know. But um, so uh, one of them, uh, one of them breaks down methane and one of them produces it um, and I think methanogens are one of them I'm probably saying this all wrong now and we're going to get people <laughs> ringing in being like no it's not um, but like, there are types of bacteria that either break down um, methane or they produce it so um, yeah yeah well, we we just we just don't know what uh, what what's going on. Maybe there's a what they call a subsurface reservoir, um, like we have here. You know, the Black Sea is a famous reservoir of uh, of methane um, on. In, on our planet, uh, lots of rotting uh, uh, veg, vegetation has produced uh, lots of methane, which is trapped uh, at the bottom of the um, uh, Black Sea. Um, incidentally, um, there are some ancient stories about metal ships suddenly going black on the Black Sea. Have you ever heard, really? heard of this? Ancient legends and people dying on these ships. They just roll in to shore crash into shore, everybody on, on, on board is dead, and they've gone black, and there's some ancient stories like that. Mm-hmm. And, and so scientists some years ago figured out that, that if, these, if this is true, it may have happened once, it may have happened several times, that, that, that one of the reasons could easily have been a bubble, a large bubble of methane had come up from the uh, seabed and just enveloped a ship, and of course you wouldn't be able to breathe in it no gosh uh, and, and, uh, and yes. it would react with with the metal, with, with the metal. Yes. yeah yeah, yeah. Well, that's amazing yeah i'm going there on holiday so i'm gonna have to watch out <laughs> yeah. i'm a bit scared now <laughs> watch out for bubbles of methane <laughs> yes or maybe hydrogen sulfide actually of course that's that now that now that's what would turn it yes. black isn't yes. it yes. yes so i've got my chemistry all wrong there <laughs> yeah, you're right. It, it, it would be it would be the hydrogen sulfide. Yes, that that's the bad the bad egg gas smell. Yes, yes. Um, uh, there's another bit to this story is that the European Space Agency, the ESA, has a new satellite uh, 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 going to Mars known as the Trace Gas Orbiter. And this has already started a global search for methane in, uh, on the planet Mars, in the atmosphere of Mars, uh, during the past uh, 14 days. And uh, it might be possible the probe could detect places on the planet where the gas is being emitted in larger quantities. And then perhaps we could send the um, Mars rover over there to just to see uh, what's happening. And in a few years' time... Uh, we'll be able to send uh, a probe that's going to dig down uh, under the surface and find out what's there. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, One thing I did notice uh, in this article, particularly from one of the scientists um, behind the work, is that they're saying that 
the one of the more impo- most important things about this is that it's a repeatable thing that's happened. Yeah. So if if the fluctuations were just completely random, random levels all the time, you wouldn't be able to pin it down to any particular pattern to then study that pattern. But now yeah. they've got something that's repeated itself at yeah. uh, the fluctuation. Yeah. They can start to narrow down their research and work out what's what's yeah. causing it. Yeah. 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 No, it cool. is. It, it is Amazing. very exciting. Yeah. So we just have to take it for what it is and uh, be excited and just... Be, see exactly what it, what it means <laughs> alright well um, there's a lot of discussion about what you would say well, I don't know what you what would you say to an alien Philippa if, if I said to you look we're gonna, we've got a message we're going to beam out into space what, what would you say to them so good you don't have to answer now you can think about well, it well I, th- I think if I, if I saw an alien I was imagining seeing an alien I think I'd just scream actually <laughs> <laughs> that would be quite a common reaction <laughs> yes I yes, yes. Yes. quite sure what, yes. I'd either be speechless or I'd scream so I don't I don't know what I'd I'd just probably say hello or something yeah. like that it's an interesting <laughs> reaction that though isn't it because that must have been what people thought um, say before um, Europeans went you know went, went to uh, the Americas, uh, or, mo- or the more modern Europeans in the Middle Ages went went to the Americas and then saw people, you know, they of a kind they hadn't seen before, na- Native Americans. Seeing something that you're not expecting to. Yeah. yeah. yeah but I guess the thing with that is that they're still a general person shape. Um, so, like, even if it, even if it's not someone that you've seen before, yeah. you recognise that they're a person. Yeah. Whereas aliens, we have no idea what they might look like. Yeah. And so, um, I had a lecturer that once told me that if you saw an alien, you would just lose your mind because <laughs> it's not. They wouldn't look like. Potentially, they wouldn't look like anything you'd ever been prepared for yeah. at all in your life. Yes. It would be a completely new stimulus, and your body wouldn't know how to react to it in any way. Yes. Uh, and so most people would just, just lose their mind. Yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> we're comforted by similarities, aren't we? Oh, when yeah. something's so strange, it's really... But how would you know it was an alien? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean... If it's you know, a hello, like, I'm an alien. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Joe Alien, hello. Oh, yeah, yeah, take me to a leader. Um, uh, well, the, the interesting question here is, what would you say? So we, we've been listening. The SETI project has been listening for a long time. The ser- SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, is a serious, grown-up, proper scientific thing. It's not, a, it's not a, um, uh, some kind of quack uh, science. Uh, listening for signals and and sometimes we've heard things which we go whoa where's that come from and we've generally always had uh, explanations um, natural explanations for why they are even though for a moment people have thought oh maybe they come from another civilization Um, but there's uh, a been a meeting in uh, Los Angeles uh, where uh, scientists have been uh, gathering to uh, ask whether there are universal aspects of language that will ena- would enable us to construct some kind of a message that um, we could send out. So instead of listening to what aliens might be saying to us through the radio waves or whatever, um, we're thinking about what we could send out to them. And uh, this is a, a thing called METI. Uh, and um, there's a scientist, uh, Professor Douglas Vakoch, uh, who has been busy talking to, uh, about this whole project uh, to our very own Andrew Glester. What do we have in common in order to make contact? If they can receive our radio signals, that means they're good engineers. They've created a radio receiver. So it seems like you need to know something as fundamental as, say, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And so 
the usual approach has been to build step by step uh, from basic mathematics to a, a description of what we and the extraterrestrial scientists have in common, the physical universe itself. So we talk about the periodic table of elements. We talk about laws of physics. Uh, but we, we never think of sending them a message in English or Chinese or Swahili because certainly that is unique to our own world. Or is it? We're stepping back and asking this question, is there something about language that we would expect extraterrestrials to understand? Do you have to, for example, have language in order to have a society that lets you build those radio telescopes? Uh, and we're getting some intriguing suggestions that you know maybe there are elements of language that the extraterrestrials would know as well. The particular idiosyncrasies of the individual languages are going to vary in extraterrestrial languages the same way that we do here. And so, you know, some of the some of the messages, at least symbolic messages that have been sent out uh, in interstellar transmissions in the past have included a bunch of tweets, you know, mm. so just send them a text message. And the idea has always been that probably won't make much sense. I mean, maybe you'll be able to tell based on how often certain letters repeat how complicated our languages are, but certainly you won't understand what we're getting at. Mm. And that holds true with this new way of looking at language as well. And I say new way, uh, new when it's applied to the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligence. But these core ideas of what is it then that if on the surface Russian and French look so different, what is it that they have in common? Well, those languages all talk about things in the world. So there are nouns. They talk about actions. Uh, so, you know, we talk about the dog chases the cat. We have one noun, the subject of a sentence, uh, doing some action with respect to uh, uh, an object of that action, of uh, the cat. But the languages we have take radically different forms. So in some languages, you need to keep a very precise ordering of the um, the different words to show what's the subject, what's the verb, and what's the object. Other languages indicate that by changing the endings on the words, that you can shift them around really into any order. So we talk about languages that are very highly inflected, uh, languages like Russian or Greek or Latin, where you convey a lot of information by variations in the individual words, as opposed to Chinese, where the uh, syntax, the sentence structure is really quite straightforward, but the complexity lies in the individual characters. So the thing that we're looking for, uh, and this is really due to uh, a linguist named Noam Chomsky, is what are the underlying characteristics that all languages need to have, even though those outward manifestations are going to be very uh, different. Uh, so you need to be able to combine uh, different elements of meaning together. So that's one of the things that you would expect even in an extraterrestrial language. So again, it, it's not as if all of a sudden we have a universal translator, we get some uh, extraterrestrial language coming in and we can have an automatic translation into English. But as we look at what you need to have to have a language at all here on Earth, we may get some clues about how extraterrestrials will also structure their world. You know, at the end of the day, Klingon, uh, the, the invented language used in Star Trek, 
has a lot more in common with English or French than it will ever have in common with a real alien language. But, uh, you know, the process of constructing languages here on Earth for cinematic purposes uh, actually gives us insights into uh, how we go about constructing languages and how they're all ultimately tied to our particular physical embodiment. Klingon sounds like a lot of other languages here on Earth because it has to be spoken by the actors who have the same vocal apparatus that's used to generate all other languages. We wouldn't expect that an extraterrestrial would have a vocal tract just like ours. They might not communicate through acoustical means at all. You know, a lot of the past messages have assumed or that extraterrestrials will have vision. So there are a lot of pictures, you know, over 100 photographs uh, included on the Voyager interstellar recording. But what happens if the aliens are blind? What happens if they evolved on uh, a world in which the environment is so cloudy and murky that vision really isn't very helpful? What? How would we communicate with a species like that? So our strategy is to avoid thinking that we've got the final best solution because we're not in a position to do that. It's much more effective at this stage, we feel, to create a variety of different messages, each with a different starting point. So my hope is that within the next couple of years, we will be transmitting messages that are inspired by the idea that aliens too may have a language and perhaps we can communicate some of the underlying structures that their languages and our languages are likely to have in common. And that was uh, Doug Vakoch uh, talking to our very own uh, Andrew Glaster. And um, Andrew uh, said that um, he, he uh, told me that, in fact, he has a message being beamed out into the cosmos, uh, which doesn't surprise me at all. Um, he won a competition asking for what you would what would you say it's the question i asked you philippa what would you say if you could send a message to aliens on a planet around a distant star and apparently andrew won this competition (laughs) and um it says he says my message was if you've been watching our television shows i'd like to formally apologize for everything before and after um carl sagan's cosmos in case you're wondering, he says, I haven't heard back. I guess they're too busy watching Love Island. Oh, <laughs> brilliant. That's good. So there you go. I don't, know, I don't know what I would say. I would say um, come soon and, uh, you know, bring us all your best technology. We are talking about science in the news and science behind the news. There's a, a weird... I don't know if any of you have heard, heard of this. Um, there's a, a story out which uh, there are two kinds of water two kinds of liquid water yeah Yeah. Um, and uh, I'll I'll just deal with this fairly quickly because it's it's quite complicated and if I deal with it over you know in a lengthy way you'll figure out I have no idea what I'm talking about (laughs) Um, but it but it but it turns out that the um, that water can so water is H2O so it's so it's it's two hydrogen uh, uh, molecules connected to an oxygen molecule and the the um, hydrogen molecules uh, sorry the hydrogen atoms have this property about them which we could call which we call spin which is a very complicated idea and i couldn't possibly uh, explain it but it turns out that you can have a water molecule where the hydrogen atoms in it spin in the same direction as each other 
or you can have water molecules where the hydrogen atoms spin in opposite directions. So, sorry, the 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 um, yes, the atoms spin in opposite directions to to each other, and it creates two different kinds of water. How weird and odd is that? That's very weird. amazing. Yeah, incredible. And so, uh, although we talk about water as if it were one thing, apparently, it just isn't. Uh-huh. And uh, so, uh, some scientists have been uh, doing work. Um, where they've managed to separate them out. The way they separate them out is they get them down uh, nearly to um, absolute zero, which is minus 273 degrees uh, centigrade. And uh, they then find that um, if they spray a beam of of, uh, this water um, and, and pass it through an electric field, you can get the... Uh, molecules to separate out so one into one type of water and one into another type of water and they found that these different molecules of water will react differently these different types of water will react differently Uh, they used a a, a little tiny molecule of of hydrogen and um, uh, sorry of of hydrogen and nitrogen Uh, and they found that uh, one kind of water reacts much more quickly with it than the other type of water. So it's just so. What, what a weird world we it's live in. Very strange world. Yeah, I mean, water, water itself uh, has got very strange properties. Um, apparently, it has um, seventy properties which make it different from any other kind of liquid. Mm. Um, it's one of the few substances which expands when it gets colder. Um, it's one of the few substances, this is related to that, where its solid form can float on top of its liquid form. And all three of its phases, solid, liquid and gas, that's water vapour, so ice, water, liquid water and water vapour, all uh, are happy uh, uh, to exist in, in fairly close uh, temperatures and pressures like here on Earth. So we see all three of those types. And it's because of that life is possible. It's the fact that it's so uh, versatile and volatile that uh, uh, living organisms make such tremendous use of it. They're incredible, mm. isn't that's it? That's amazing. amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there we go. Anyway, that's, a, that's very, very technical stuff. Uh, some, something which um, I, I think uh, all of us are, are touched by this, uh, which, is, which is cancer. You know, we either know people you know, in our families or people that we care about who um, uh, have struggled or struggle with cancer in some way. Um, uh, or, uh, or it's something which uh, you know affects us. Um, there's this amazing story that a woman has survived um, metastatic breast cancer thanks to a new treatment, which is a form of immunotherapy. I don't know if anybody's seen this story. It was quite asto- yeah. astonishing. A lady called um, Judy Perkins from Florida had breast cancer that spread to her other organs despite trying seven other cancer treatments she had tennis ball sized lesion lesions throughout her liver uh, and they think she would have died within the next two to three months before she had the treatment and um, they've been able to do uh, this amazing treatment. I don't know if anybody else wants to sort of pick this up and explain it, yeah. Um, So it's a really interesting um, treatment. It doesn't normally work on breast cancer, Um, but like you said, she did try, she tried seven other kinds of treatment before she signed up to this as a trial, so it's not a formal uh, treatment that's available at the moment. Um, But what they were able to do is to, essentially, is going to 
is what they did is boost her immune system so that it fought the cancer itself. Now, this isn't something... Your body will often um, attack some cancer cells at a very low level anyway, um, but not nearly enough to, um, to reduce the cancer itself. Um, what they've done is they have taken some of her cancer cells um, and... Uh, decode all of that DNA, all the DNA in the cancer cells that she's got, um, and then some of her normal cells, and compare the two to find what the differences are. And some of these mutations that are causing the differences um, are present on the surface of the cell. Now, what's on the surface of the cell is what's uh, recognised by your um, your white blood cells that fight disease and things like that. And if you've got very uh, distinctive markers that differentiate your cancer cell from your normal cell, you can get an immune response to the cancer cell. And, and the point is that um, cancer is very good at hiding, usually, isn't it? Yes. Um, uh, we, 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 it, the, the, the body doesn't actually detect cancer very well, does it? Not really, because it's still just your own cells, yeah. um, and they're multiplying. Uh, there's quite a lot of things that make cancer different and make cancer dangerous. Yeah. Um, the word metastatic here means that um, this cancer had the trait of moving to other parts of the body. So yeah. some cells yeah. will break off into the blood and then settle in another part of the body and start developing yeah. Yeah. Uh, something there. Yeah. Um, not all cancers are metastatic. Um, but, like you said, they are very... Because they often replicate very quickly as well, if yeah. you try and just target one particular marker on the outside of the cell, it will often just um, replicate away to a different to use a different marker, or that marker yeah. will go away, and yeah. it's very good at hiding uh, that way. So what they did was they chose four different markers for, for Judy and um, extracted some of her lymphocytes, which are a type of blood, uh, white blood cell. Uh, not all white blood cells are lymphocytes, but lymphocytes are white blood cells. And um, got some that would react to the four different types of uh, markers that they identified, and then replicated them loads and loads and loads and loads of times, and got 80 billion of them, and then put them back into her. And what they found was that that treatment um, was it reduced the tennis ball-sized lesions that you said by half within just six weeks. And then by a year later, they'd completely disappeared. And two and a half years later, she's, she's still doing really well. She's doing great. Um, like I said, it's not a really common treatment at the moment. It's still at a trial stage. Um, but as well as that, they also gave her a, um, a drug to take, which just... It's, I can't remember what it's called, but it's, it essentially prevents the white blood cells from dying off um, and keeps those levels boosted in her system. Yeah. Okay, because they do often once they've bound to a cell to kill it, they often die, and um, that that can just reduce the numbers really quickly. So it's to help maintain those high levels. Yeah, uh, it's worked really well. It's just fantastic, isn't it? Uh, it's called a checkpoint inhibitor. I've got it right in front Thank of me. Thank you very much. I didn't know that. I just got it. I've got it in front yeah, of me. Yeah, and, and normally it doesn't work on on breast cancer, uh, breast cancer cells, because they have fewer mutations compared to others like um, that that you get in skin cancer or in lung cancer associated with uh, smoking breast cancer has few of the markers so it's often much more difficult to make these yeah. um, this kind of immune um, immunotherapy but this has worked amazingly well, and yeah. it's a really, um, really it's positive outcome. Tr tremendously encouraging, isn't yeah, it? Um, really is. we, sh we should uh, just say the team have treated two other women with breast can mm. cancer. Uh, one didn't respond, uh, unfortunately, and, and the other died before they could evaluate the treatment. 
But we found something incredibly important here. So uh, there's uh, you know, every reason to be hopeful. And we wish them very well mm-hmm. with their research. Um, there's another study uh, which has uh, come out as well, uh, coincidentally, which says that 70% of women with the most common form of early-stage breast cancer don't need to have chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And a, a genetic test can identify which women can be safely treated with only surgery and hormone therapy, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, spares them the severe side effects uh, like nausea, fatigue... Uh, nerve pain and so on that you 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 can get with uh, chemotherapy. Mm. Uh, so again, that's there's some very good news uh, yeah, on, on that yeah, front. Yeah, two pieces of excellent news. Yeah, yeah, really good. I think okay. um, it's brilliant that um, that cancer researchers are always bringing out new treatments and things for people yeah. to be hopeful about. Um, yeah. and for people like this woman, it's fantastic. Yeah, and yeah. it really points towards the kind of movement towards more personalised treatment. General things like chemotherapy and radiotherapy, um, they're very broad and they can have a lot of very negative um, side effects on, on the patient, but when you start to get these more personalised treatments that really focus in on the specific problem of that patient, the side effects tend to be much less for them and, and much more comfortable experience during the treatment phase, which is as well a yeah. really positive outcome. Yeah, yeah. well, fant- uh, fantastic. Um, we're racing towards the end of the show. We've just got time for uh, one more story of all the ones that we've uh, uh, lined up. I, I fancy the one about the uh, scorching hot lava because that is so amazing, isn't it? This is uh, on uh, Hawaii. I don't know if uh, any, anybody's seen the story. Apparently an entire lake has disappeared. She's gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I can't amazing. believe it. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. Yes. Because <laughs> apparently it was 60 metres deep um, and 70, 7.7 miles squared. Um, and I think, I, I can't remember how long it took for it to boil away, but it wasn't that long. And people have been mourning the loss of this lake. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what the lake is called, even, but yeah. um, it's just it's the it's the biggest lake Green on lake. this. That's it, Green Lake. Um, it's the biggest lake on the biggest island of Hawaii. Uh, I think is that correct? Um, but yeah, and and also this lava flow it has um, it is fab, um, and also um, this lava flow is like created like new structures in the landscape so it's um flooded into one of the bays and created a delta i'm not really sure what that is though but um apparently it's changed like the whole landscape yes a delta yeah. i think is where a river if i remember my school geography is where a river sort of fans out as it um, goes into the sea so you have lots of shallower rivers yes. instead of one big one you know yeah. Like we have at Avonmouth, for, exa- for example. So, yeah, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. I, I was just imagining all those, you know, that, the clouds of steam that there There was a lot be. of steam. There, I yeah. mean, you know, I wonder how far away you could have seen it from and everything. And, and, you know, what would have happened to all the animals and anyone who was just close by? Yeah, I mean, did so they all the, too? all the wildlife in the, yeah. in the pond. Like, Unfortunately, some perished. can leave, but not, yeah. not everything can. Yes. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it says the, the assassination by evaporation began on Saturday morning, June the 2nd, when lava from Fisher 8 flowed into the lake and boiled the water away. It didn't go peacefully, <laughs> so <laughs> developed this huge, huge plume of smoke and people have started leaving reviews on Google um, saying that it should be ne- renamed Lava Lake and the lake is lit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should say we're joined by John Ford, who's... Um uh, don't don't forget uh, after the news, John Ford is getting Bristol home, so stay stay tuned for his great show. After that, uh, John, now I'm taking it, John. You've probably got 
um, a lakeside property in Hawaii. Yes, of course, yeah. Yes, you, might. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you look like the kind of person who would have. Yeah. That, yeah. be That's why I'm here every week. <laughs> that would be disappointing, wouldn't it? You've it would a be, nice, yeah. nice lakeside oh, property. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The lake has disappeared. I've got you? a river at the bottom of my garden, if that's any help. Oh, have you? Yes. It's ah, yes. lovely. But, you yeah. know, it's still there. It's <laughs> not, not disappeared. It gets deeper <laughs> when it rains. But, so, yeah. so, John, what, what, uh, what have we left out of the Oh, show loads, of, loads of things. Let's go with this one um, because of time. Uh, this day in 1975, there was a, a professor called Michael Elroy. He got a bunch of other scientists together, and they published a paper on their concern. Now, bearing in mind he was from Harvard University in the States, bearing in mind Trump's coming out of the climate chain of uh, change accord, but back in 1975 on this day, um, they published a paper on their concerns of atmospheric ozone depletion, proclaiming their support for the banning of uh, chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs as they're known in uh, propellants used in spray cans and government started to implement the prohibition of, uh, of them about three years later. But we're still going on about the environment after all these years, aren't we? Yeah. Strange. Yeah. Well, not strange. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious. But, uh, yeah, it is. You, yeah. Wonder, you wonder how serious it all has to get before uh, you know, people... Well, go, we've kind of dealt just... with the hole in the ozone layer. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. Um, and people know about that. And But now it's uh, what happens on our own planet, isn't it? On yeah. terra firma and below yeah. in the sea, in the oceans yeah. and so yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. That's the current Absolutely. one, Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. But it well, takes scientists to sort of all get together, doesn't it? It and, does. And, we, and come we, out and we actually had a great story lined up, which we didn't have time to do, which is all about how, um, how uh, scientists have come up with ways to fairly cheaply suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And when I say cheaply, you know, relatively. Plant cheaply. trees. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> that, it's a kind of artificial, artificial yeah, yeah, tree. Yeah. So we'll maybe get to that story later. Anyway, uh, stay tuned for John getting Bristol home uh, after this. Uh, it's been great to have your company. And uh, so a big thanks to uh, uh, Philippa and um, Jenny. And, of course, from Hannah and me, uh, have yourselves a very good evening and we'll see you again next week.